With so many challenges in the world today, you might wonder how your kids are going to get through it all. Today's guest, Tiffany Barnes, endured physical, mental, and sexual abuse and was emancipated at the age of 15. She worked three jobs to support herself through high school and became a sterling scholar, graduated at the top of her class, was an athlete, and also founded SHARE, an advocacy group for students by students who had experienced abuse. Tune into this episode for hope about how our kids can become resilient and empowered through the challenges of today. Hello and welcome to another episode of Soul Nectar Show, that show where we talk about all things essence, where we gather around the campfire and we share our stories of connection to that, which is bigger than us, to the great mystery beyond the veil, to God's source creator, whatever your word is. And we share our story of synchronicity and how we found our path to that medicine that we're uniquely designed to bring into the world, that voice, that message, that life work. And I'm your host, Carrie Hummingbird. I love having these conversations. I love having them on the show. I love supporting people privately in their own lives to align to their own inner knowing, to take that thumbprint journey of their own life and to be honoring of that divinity flowing through you. And uh, always on the show, I always have really interesting guests. And today is going to be no different. This is so inspiring and empowering. We're going to hear from Tiffany Barnes. Welcome, Tiffany. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. So Tiffany's going to share her story of the background and the reason why she began a advocacy group for students called SHARE. And that stands for Sharing Hope for Abused Through Resilience and Empowerment. And that is awesome. We're going to find out more about why that's so has such a passion in Tiffany's heart. And I just encourage you to, you know, to listen in and really consider also getting her book, The Throwaway Girl, which is an inspiring autobiography soon to be released. So let's go to Tiffany now. So tell us a little bit about your story. Like what is behind your movement of share? Why did you, why did you found that organization? Why is that such a close thing to your heart? Well, first of all, again, I just want to say thank you for having me on. It's an honor. Uh, Before I get into my story, I love the movement that you also are sharing with others and finding their true selves. And I think you use the word essence. I love that. So, you know, kind of a long story short, because there's a lot of details to my life in a very short period of time. I had to grow up very quickly from my earliest memory until I was about 13 years old. I had suffered all forms of abuse you know, physical, sexual, emotional, you name it. And uh, my mother was a drug addict, unfortunately had been a drug addict almost my entire life for the the good majority of my life. Uh, And as a result of her drug addictions, I have two mentally disabled brothers. And my biological father was very physically abusive towards me. Uh, My parents were young when they had me, they were 16 and 17. So they were kids themselves, you know, raising a child. And I make that point because I try to put myself in their shoes. You know, we know that abuse is a, is cyclical. It's a cycle. 
And uh, I look back on my life and I think, okay, why did they do what they did? And um, with my mom, I mean, there's a lot of things that I, I just still don't understand. With my dad, I think a lot of it was um, my mother had such a hold on him that when they would argue or they would fight, he was so afraid of losing her because that's what her thing was. She would always threaten, you know, she was very promiscuous and was not very faithful to my father and uh, would always say, you know, I'm going to leave you. And, and my dad just kind of put her on this pedestal as a princess, I guess, is the best way to put it. And anytime, again, when they would argue, I was the one that would face my dad's anger and wrath. You know, I remember one day I was sitting on the floor coloring in some coloring books and he picked me off the, picked me up off the floor and threw me across the room and had broken my arm and my collarbone. And so, and that was because he was mad at her and took it out on me, you know, and the man he is today, he's not physically abusive, but he is very emotionally and mentally abusive still in my life. And so I've got to set boundaries, you know, still at 38 years old, that there's still this pattern that I'm seeing, but uh, getting to share and why I started share is uh, at 13 years old, my mother had given, well, my stepfather had given my mother an ultimatum. So he was sexually abusing me for about two years from 11 to 13 years old. He was a military police officer. He was somebody who was very intimidating had a temper to the point that sometimes my mother would get hauled away in an ambulance when they would fight. And he said, if you say anything to anybody, I'll kill you. Well, when you're 11, 12, 13 years old, and this six foot four military police officer, ex-military police officer threatens your life, and you see these behaviors in your home, what he's doing to your own mother, you know, you keep your mouth shut. You know, I thought he would have legitimately tried to kill me. And so I let this you know, pattern of what he was doing and the sexual abuse take place for these two years. And there was one morning that I was getting ready for school and my room was in the basement and my mother had come downstairs and inquired why it had taken so long for him to quote unquote, wake me up. And that was when a lot of the abuse would take place was in the mornings. You know, he was in charge of waking me up for school and other things ensued, you know, you can imagine. And so my mother had inquired and I'm doing my hair and I'm like, well, that's weird. Mom's never cared about me. <laughs> and I say that literally, you know, I really felt growing up that I was a, a paycheck to my mother in the, in the, the regard of child support, you know, and she used that for her addictions that was never spent on us. You know, um, she didn't care how I did in school. She never asked me how I was doing mentally. She would constantly tell me that I was a piece of trash or I was fat or I was ugly, you know, all these things that uh, you should never tell a child. And so for her to come to me and inquire about the relationship, I thought, well, maybe this one time she'll protect me. And then I had this other side that said, but if you say something to her, he's going to kill you. So I was conflicted. I was like, okay, do I tell mom what's been going on? Or do I keep my mouth shut because I'm afraid of being killed? And my mom just kept pressing it. She kept saying, you know, no, I want to know what's going on between you and Robert. That was his name, is his name. And um, I, I took a chance. And again, I thought, you know, she's never taken stock in my life. So I spilled the beans and I told her what was happening between myself and, and my stepfather. And she calls him home from work. And we have this family meeting around the kitchen table. And he denies everything. He says he did nothing. I've made the whole thing up, that I'm a liar. And basically gives my mother this ultimatum to choose between me or him. She does not even hesitate three seconds, 
turns to me and says, you have until tomorrow to get the bleep out of my house. So here I've told a trusted adult about the abuse, thinking I'll be protected. She seems furious when she calls him home from work, you know, like she's going to take my side and she chooses him. My mother has always chosen a man over her children, unfortunately. She hosts a yard sale and has a yard sale selling all of my belongings in front of me that day. Uh, My bikes, my toys, my clothes. And I'm sitting here thinking I'm worth more to my mother, you know, for an item that's a quarter or a dollar at a yard sale than I am as her own flesh and blood firstborn child. And that's a lot. That's a lot to carry at 13 years old. And so I take a little garbage bag and put some clothes in there. I had a a Tootsie Roll bank. If you remember those little cylinder Tootsie Roll banks, I had two or three bucks in there. And I walked to the local bus stop and got myself on the bus, took it into downtown Salt Lake City, not knowing where I was going to sleep, where I was going to go, terrified. My world is spinning. Like, well, how does my mother who brings me life do this to me? And so as I'm racking my brain where I'm going to go, you know, this was in October. And here in Salt Lake City, we get snow in October. The sun sets sooner, you know, because we do the fallback of our clocks and all of that. And so I'm, I'm scared. Where am I going to go? And I'm looking at these buildings and I'm like, okay, which one can I break into? Or who could I call? Or what are my options? And then I thought, well, maybe I could try to go stay with my dad. And so I take my transfer slip from the bus to jump on another bus. It was only good for a couple hours. And I take it up to a, a town called Layton, Utah, which is about by car, about a 30 to 40 minute drive by bus <laughs> with all the stops. It was about an hour and a half or so. So I'm sitting in the back of this bus and I'm asking myself, am I even doing the right thing by going to my dad's house? And the reason why is because I was wondering, am I going to trade one evil for another, meaning one form of abuse for another, another form of abuse? Because again, as I mentioned earlier, my dad was very physically abusive to me until my parents divorced when I was seven, but I didn't have a lot of options. So I took on the risk. So I, I knock on my dad's door, tell him why I'm there. He takes me in because he takes me in. He takes on a second job cleaning floors at a trucking company. So I became a latchkey kid, meaning I got up for school. Dad was already gone for his job which my dad had a a license that was revoked for a hit and run accident. So he had to ride the bus to and from Salt Lake every day. So that hour and a half bus ride. Um, And then I'd come home from school and he was still gone because he was working that second job. That was the worst thing that could have ever happened for me was spending that much time alone. You know, again, dealing with just being a young woman, growing into myself, what happened with my mother. Now I'm in a new environment. And mind you, growing up, I went to 23 different elementary schools. Mom bounced me around a lot. And so I just didn't want to make friends anywhere I went because I thought I was just going to be gone soon, you know. And I became anorexic. I became suicidal. And I hated the person that I saw in the mirror. I thought I was the most disgusting individual on the planet. And again, I thought if the woman who brought me life doesn't want me, what's the point? And so I made several attempts to end my life. Well, there was this moment I woke up one morning and said, today's going to be the day I do it. I end my life. What's the point? And it was almost like a devil angel situation where I had this, you know, angel saying, but you have so much to live for. And there's so much more than this. And don't let this defeat you. And then that devil saying, you'll never amount to anything. You're not worthy. You're a piece of trash and you know, all these things. And I listened to that angel that day. 
And I realized I needed to get help because I was just going on a downward spiral. So I reached out to a friend of mine, told her what I was about to do. She talked to her parents and her parents said, no, we need to have her get some help. And if she needs to, she can stay with us while she gets the help. So I connected with a social worker, took me two years to get myself right in my head and in my heart and actually feel worthy to be on the planet and to feel loved and to feel, you know, beautiful when I looked in the mirror and all these things. And so then that takes me to 15 years old. At 15 years old, I'm talking with my social worker and they said, okay, well, here's your options at this point. We can put you into foster care, which I didn't want to do because I don't want to bounce around like I did before, or you can become an emancipated minor. And I didn't know what emancipation meant. I didn't know what the process was. I knew nothing. So they kind of explained it to me. And he said, well, the odds are stacked against you in a sense, because there's only one other case in the state at 15 years old that's won an emancipation at that time. And I thought, okay, well, odds have been stacked against me so far. Why don't I go for it? And I became the second case in the state of Utah to become a legally emancipated minor at 15 years old. I didn't have mom or dad telling me to get out of bed and go to school and make good grades and not do bad things. You know, I actually grew up hearing the opposite was okay. But I ended up renting a basement apartment for $500 a month uh, my whole high school career. I worked three part-time jobs my senior year, graduated top of my class, and got a full-ride scholarship with honors to the University of Utah. And I mentioned that not to be like, hey, look at me, I'm braggadocious. It's I had a choice. I had a choice that I could have said, woe is me and been the victim. But I chose to be the victor. Meaning I made myself a promise I was going to be everything that my parents were not. I wasn't going to be hooked on drugs like mom. I wasn't going to be a teenage pregnant like they were. I was going to pay my bills just like they didn't, you know, and do all the things that they were just the opposite, literally the opposite. And when I was going to school, I could check myself in and out of school. And I remember there was one day that I was writing myself a note. Please excuse Tiffany Barnes for being late. Thank you, Tiffany Barnes. And my teacher had to accept it. And it was my Spanish teacher, third period. And there was this kid on the front row. And he's like, well, that's not fair. I don't write my own notes. I got to get mom or dad to sign my notes. And so then kids started to catch wind. You know, what the heck? She doesn't have parents at home. Let's go have a party at her house. Or some people thought it was so cool. You know, so many different points of view. But kids would come up to me and say, well, why don't you have parents? And why do you live on your own? And I would explain my situation. And it was what I call a Tiffany epiphany happened. This light bulb goes off and there's a voice in my, in my head that says, this is the reason why you never took your life. You're meant to be a catalyst for others to realize they too can overcome abuse. And when I would share my story of abuse, kids were saying, I too am being abused, but I've never told anyone. Or I know someone who's being abused and I don't know what to do. And so I started a support group in high school called SHARE. And at the time, it stood for students helping abused react and empower. And all we did is we taught each other, you know, let's say we had classes together. We did our homework together. Let's say we just got together and just vented. We cried. We, you know, got all the things out that we needed to say that nobody else would listen to. And somebody in that group, it was just 10 kids. Somebody in that group told somebody at a neighboring high school what we were doing And they said, I want to start that support group at my school. And then another school. 
And then I was starting to get asked to come and speak to different organizations about my story or administration on how to recognize the signs of abuse and, you know, from a, a kid's perspective. And it just kind of spiraled into this amazing movement that is now a 501c3 nonprofit that started over 20 years ago. And here we are today. Oh, man, that is so inspiring. Your story is just amazing. I love it. I just, there's so many nuances to the story. And I think you know that some of the work I do is healing the mother wounds, right? So it's healing that wound within each of us, really, human beings that was started because of the disempowerment of the feminine, right? The disempowerment, the shaming, all of the things about the feminine that lead a person into being what? A, you know, a drug addict and unsupported and and having a teenage pregnancy and not having like the love in their heart to take care of that baby, right? I mean, all right. the patterns for the last thousands of years that ripple down through the humanity and come to this place right now where you were born and, and to these parents that were completely unable to take care of you. And then you were guided through your spiritual journey. I mean, I have a question for you and it's, it's a really, it's a question that's really on my heart. I just have this curiosity about your perspective given everything that you've been through Clearly you survived. Clearly you went through a really just abhorrent situation being born into the the parents that you were born to. And you survived and you've made this beautiful gift out of your life. And currently also there are people who are taking away a woman's right to choose. Like maybe a woman who is a teenage mom who says, I don't have the capacity to have this baby. That right is now being taken away in Texas. What's your perspective on that? What a conundrum. I know it's a big question to ask you, but as somebody who's been abused by somebody who was incapable of taking care of you, what's your solution? Like, what's your answer to that dilemma? You know, if you would have asked me that question, I don't know, 10 plus years ago, I would have always said abortion is never the answer or adoption, giving away a child for adoption is never the answer. And my perspective has greatly changed because of what I've seen. And, you know, even in my own life, 10 years ago, I thought, oh, I'll be a mother. I'm going to have kids. And now I don't want to have children because there's so many kids out there that don't have a home that I could be adopting. That's just my personal perspective. And I've had some things happen to me in my life where I've had to make choices. <laughs> if you can read between the lines, if I should do it or not do it. And, you know, it's so sad that there's so much shame specifically here in Utah. You know, it's a very Mormon-driven state, and I'm not here to bash any religions. I think if anybody's grown up in Utah, they've been Mormon at some point or another, including myself. And so I've grown up with these very, you know, just with blinders on to a lot of social issues is what you're speaking about. And now as I'm older and I've done so much inner work and I've worked with more Eastern modalities, I realize that it's a cycle, as you've mentioned. It trickles down from our ancestors, from you know, our epigenetics from, let's say, 14 generations ago, it could come from, you know, it's in our DNA. And I think that uh, that should be a choice. That should not be something that's ripped away from somebody because look at the repercussions. You know, I'm, I'm an anomaly if you really look at it. And again, I don't say that to be braggadocious, but if you look at people that have had my type of a story, they tend to lean to, like you mentioned, drugs, teenage pregnancy, bad relationships where they're getting abused, you know, because that's what they know. They equate love to not being a good love, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Abusive so, love. Yeah, it's an abusive love. And so I think that it should be a choice. 
anything that happens to you should be a choice. It shouldn't be a politician's choice. It shouldn't be a government's choice. You know, isn't that what America's about is the freedom of choice? Well, and I can totally get on my bandwagon here, but it's like you inspired me in this conversation because I thought, huh, I wonder how many social workers who actually deal with the consequences of child abuse year after year after year after year are pro-life and taking away a woman's choice. Yeah, I wonder how many of those people that are actually in the trenches doing the work with the abused children are also advocating for taking away a woman's right to end a pregnancy if she doesn't think she can handle that job. Just curious how many Christian pro-lifers are actually social workers too. Right. Yeah, I can totally see that. I would love to do a survey of that. And I actually feel like I want to now just to kind of make that point. Like, you know, like some have some statistics to back that up. Like, hmm, I did a survey of all social workers across the United States and I found out that like literally, I don't know, 1% of them are Christian pro-lifers, you know, wonder what the difference is. Why is that so? And then we might really understand something about this dogmatic, religious, misogynistic aspect. Just, that's just me. I'm fired up today. So sorry if that offends anybody listening, but you know, I'm, I'm for a woman's choice. I'm for children who living, living lives where they're wanted, loved, cared for, and supported. And you are a miracle, frankly, Tiffany, like you are the miracle. You were able to make your way through and out of every, I mean, you've had an experience now of uh, what do you say the statistics are for that in your experience? Like how many kids don't make it out compared to the one that you are that did? I don't know those statistics. I would venture to say though, that it's gotta be less than 10% of people who end up like me, you know, just statistics alone, one in four women, one in six men before the age of 18, before the age of 18, suffer some form of abuse. The number one form of abuse is sexual abuse. Out of all of the abuses I've been through, and again, I've been through all of them, sexual sexual abuse has affected me more traumatically and greatly than any of the others. Bruises go away. Words, you know, I would say that's the next, the second worst would be, you know, verbal abuse because it's so hard. That's what starts to train our mind and our memories. But sexual abuse, it's it's played a part in my romantic relationships. I mean, I'm going to be 39 in July. I'm not married and I don't have kids. And a lot of that is because of the sexual trauma I've endured. And I've had to retrain my way of thinking about sex and love and relationships, you know, because for me, sex was something that is like, no, I don't want to go down that road because I equate it to being something bad when it can be a very beautiful thing, you know? And so in answer to your question, I don't know those numbers, but I would venture to say less than 10%. Because when I share my story, you know, um, I've been giving presentations on my story for a long time. I got to run the torch in the Olympics for the 2002 Winter Olympics. And I was come with my torch and guest at all these schools and all these things. And I get asked the same question every time. How is it that you survived and other people haven't? And I don't have that magical algorithm or formula or whatever. All I know is I believe in soul contracts. And you and I talked about this on my podcast. I firmly believe before I came to this earth, I decided this life. I chose it. And I knew that I was going to rise to the occasion and I was going to be able to handle it. I wouldn't have been able to say this when I was going through it. But now that I'm older and hopefully wiser, uh, I believe that I chose this life and everything that I've been through for it. 
And still having chosen that life, if you had an opportunity to prevent suffering for another human being from living a similar life, would you make that choice to prevent another human being from having to endure the suffering that you went through? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. 200%. I mean, why wouldn't I? You know, and that's what my life's work is. That's my purpose is to affect one life positively in knowing they can overcome abuse because too many people use their past as a crutch rather than a stepping stone to a better future. And the beautiful thing about life is every day we wake up is another opportunity to turn it all around, but people don't realize that. People think, well, all of this has happened to me. There's no way for me to change my life to make it what I want it to be. And that's false. That's a gift we are given every single day. The thing I really love about your energy and your story is how you stepped into personal empowerment early. I did, yeah. Which is weird. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, at 15, to be owning your own, like having your own apartment and responsible for yourself and to have that be the better way that your life was going, right, is kind of amazing. Most kids at that age are complaining about, you know, mom and dad not buying them the latest, like, you know, game or something or not giving them money for something that they want. You know, there's a lot of entitlement that goes on actually in a, a great deal of the world. So to have that be your your platform, your question, in a way might seem, like you said, might seem really terrible. And also it put you in self-empowerment. It put you in self-directed choice. Like you were very clearly the one directing your own life and your own options. Right. I was, it was funny you mentioned this. So I listen to podcasts when I'm in the shower. That's my thing. You know, because your thoughts wander when you're in the shower. And I was showering this morning and I was listening to a particular podcast. And this, I got this download this morning of like a flashback into my life. I was that person at 16, 17, 18 that would go to the Barnes and Noble and I would sit in the self-help section. I was the one that bought those chicken soup for the soul books and all the self-help books, even at before 18 years old, 16, 17 years old, I'm reading these books and I'm thinking, that's kind of bizarre when you think about it, when you're like looking back, a kid going into Barnes and Noble and buying self-help books. But I don't know. There was just something in me that, that like said, no, you're meant for more than this. And so, you know, I started to go down that self-help, self-improvement lane very early. And the thing about that is once you've gone through all that suffering, your goal is to help others avoid the suffering sooner It's not to champion, let's keep the same suffering conditions going so more people can try to struggle the way I did and make it through. Right. Like, but yeah, it's got, see, that's kind of what's just happened in Texas is that people with their zealotry have gone back to this, like, well, let's just create the same predicament for suffering that Tiffany went through in this state, you know, and make it worse even because there's no chance of ending the, the, you know, the pregnancy from incest. What if you'd gotten pregnant from your stepfather, right? In Texas now, you'd be forced to carry that baby to term. Being a person who survived such kind of incest, how do you feel about that? Having to carry a baby to term that, that you were, you got as a product of incest? Man, a lot of words come to mind, but it makes me feel very disturbed is the first thing I think of, you know, to know that you're, you know, somebody gets raped. And they have to carry a baby from their rapist. You know what I mean? Like, why? I don't know how I would look at that child. I don't know. I've never been a mother. So I I can't really speak on that. But just kind of a, a third party view, I guess, looking from a looking glass outside, not ever feeling those emotions of being a mother. 
I would feel it's like a reminder of what I went through that very traumatic event. You know what I mean? If that makes any sense, I think that's torture. It's torture. Yeah. So as somebody you, so you, you've been a person who's been tortured sexually and then you would have to carry that baby inside your body as a constant reminder of the torture that you've been through. Exactly. Because of somebody else's religious zealotry. Exactly. And that makes you feel pretty shitty, I imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Disturbed. It makes you feel shitty. I mean, there's no positive words, we'll say, <laughs> that come to mind about the, the subject. And because you already spoke to the shameful way that you felt about yourself, right? Like, this is an aspect that I think any person who has not been a product of incest, and I did experience some really early in my life, as I shared, I think, on your show. But like, if you haven't embodied and experienced that, then you actually don't understand it. And if you haven't been raped, then you really don't understand that either. But those two experiences are, they're very shaming to women. Like women actually take on the shame of that sexual experience, even though they were not the ones that initiated the sexual act. There's like a really twisted dynamic that goes on psychologically that I believe is inherited as part of the mother wound that happens specifically for women. And, you know, you mentioned the mother wound. I want to just kind of, if I may say this very quickly, sometimes I think maybe I also don't have children. I, I say I don't have children because one, there's so many kids that need to be adopted. And I firmly believe that if I were to have a child, I'd rather adopt a child that comes out of a circumstance like I have, because I, I understand what they're going through. Maybe it's not a hundred percent identical in our experiences, but I can understand where they're coming from, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But then I think another part of me is because of the mother wound. Like I'm trying to stop it with me because I can say anything I want on anybody's show, but I don't know till I'm really a mother myself, right? I don't know what I'm going to be if I were to have my own child or even adopt a child. And so I think I do have a little bit of apprehension because of that mother wound, you know, that maybe there's something I haven't healed or something that's still inside of me where there is a little bit of a chance that I could fuck up that child part of my language, edit that out if you need to. But, you know, <laughs> um, there's a little bit of that, that, that does worry me still. Yeah. Because it's kind of like when you've experienced such a painfully abusive childhood, how do you know, like, you know, like, you know, that whatever you're thinking about doing as a mother is loving. How do you know that? Right. There's no guarantee that I might not have my own child, that either I bear myself or that I adopt, that I don't somehow, you know, the things I think I've stopped with me might still be in me a little bit. You know what I mean? If that makes sense. Where I think I'm doing good, but maybe I'm hurting in an emotional way. Yeah. Or there's also patterns, you know, noticed in myself and, I think that I was not as conscious as you are in this moment when I got pregnant with my kids because I, I've been through so much psychotherapy. I just made the assumption I'm healed, you know, whatever that was, it's done and I'm good. And I, you know, I had a very decent dad from the time I was five until I was, you know, into my adulthood. So, you know, I just made this assumption I'm fine. I'm, I'm really book smart, you know, like my grades are great. I graduated cum laude for my really prestigious university, all the same kind of stuff, right? Like I'm smart. Look, I, I'm successful. I can achieve all these things. And then something different happened when I had the baby in my body and all these physiological things started changing inside of me. And then I birthed this baby. I was like in immediate depression. 
I was in a postpartum depression for months and I could have never anticipated that that was going to happen, right? Like I didn't know how it was going to stir me up on the inside. And yeah, those early months with him, I was doing my best to manage all of those feelings and still be loving and gentle to this beautiful baby. And there's one day in particular that I lost it because he'd been crying nonstop for like hours and days. You know, he just, he was very colicky and I screamed back. I will never forget that moment. It happened one time. Yeah. One time. And I still beat myself up for it. Like, you know, however many, he's 21 now. So we were, he was the one I was talking to you right before we got on our call. Yeah. And, you know, so it's like, I think as a mom, I think our whole desire and every woman's desire I know in her heart, certainly in mine before I had my babies was to be like, to do it better than my mom, right? To be a better resource. Yeah. So sometimes maybe that be- the being the better resource is doing what you're doing in the world, you know, actually being a resource for all of these kids that need somebody like you that, that understands what they're going through. Yeah, I agree. I just, like I say, I've still got that little bit of apprehension of if I'm in that position, you know, like you say, a screaming baby. What's going to happen in your mind? You know, like none of us know the answer to that though, Tiffany. So I do want to also say, I want to acknowledge your feelings and I respect and honor your feelings about that. And I want to just maybe throw into the space that you might actually be well better prepared than so many other mothers simply because of all the in deep inner work that you've been doing on yourself. There's a right. possibility that actually you might even be way more prepared than a good part of the population in actually having a child. So I wouldn't want you to stop yourself from that experience because of that fear, you know, and anybody else out there who's gone through a similar experience to Tiffany, I think, I think it's important that you learn to trust yourself. Yeah. I know it's in the cards. It's in the next five years, I believe it's going to happen, you know, because I'm in a place career wise where I'm doing well and I would be able to support financially another person and all of that. It's just so interesting how, you know, looking back on my life, I was a writer a lot. That was a, a big part of my healing was writing. Hence why I have the book. And I used to love to write poems. I wrote poems all the time. I think that came from my grandmother because she was a, a published poet and I would write these poems about being married with a husband and these kids and this great life. And, and now here I am at almost 40 and I have none of those things. But I think it's because, like you say, I've made a conscious effort to realize I needed to heal me first, no matter how long that took. And it's still a journey. I'm not here to say I'm perfect. There's still things I'm still working on and I still see a, a somatic you know, healer for And so, yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting how we visualize our lives in a certain point when we're younger and we're more naive, right? And then as we become older, just kind of how things really transform. I see these butterflies behind you (laughs) and I keep thinking of the butterfly Mm -hmm. and the transformation it makes. I love butterflies for that, you know, and the metamorphosis and and, uh, how we grow to be these beautiful butterflies in life. And so I just feel that's a symbol of who we are as women too. You know, as people, we're on constant metamorphosis and we learn through our life's experiences. And I do believe that when you've gone through something that you've gone through and you feel that calling to help alleviate suffering for others, I feel like that you're tapped into something there. Like I really feel like we're actually here to alleviate suffering, not to be all machismo and be like, well, let's just create the conditions for more people (laughs) to suffer because that sounds awesome. You know, like- you know, I don't think we're here to create more conditions for suffering. I think we're here to actually listen 
and, you know, encourage each other to live with less suffering. Exactly. Yeah. That's the purpose. I just, uh, (laughs) for the nonprofit, we just got done doing a youth empowerment day on Saturday and um, it was our second annual. And the reason we created this day is I just remember as a kid, I didn't have the opportunity to be a kid very often, you know, having to grow up early. I didn't go to high school dance. I didn't go to prom. I didn't go to football games. I didn't, you know, do a lot of things that a lot of people had that fortunate experience of doing. And so the Youth Empowerment Day was a day where kids could come anywhere between the ages of two to 18 to just feel inspired and empowered and know they're not alone in their journey. You know, there was a magician there, there was face painting, there was, you know, Captain America came and princesses and they made these little tiny toy cars and games. And it was so amazing. And it was so, um, man, I can't even think of the word. It was just so awe-inspiring to look around that event and be like, you know, even if it's just a day, we've created a day that hopefully these kids will forever remember that they are not their circumstance. And just to be a kid, you know, to not forget that. And we had a lot of foster parents come and bring their families, you know, the children that they have adopted or they're fostering. And even these parents saying, thank you. Thank you for creating a day like this. And it's so simple, but because we are too busy suffering and specifically during the pandemic, you know, we weren't able to do it during the pandemic. This was our, would have been our third year, but it was our second, um, you know, just to be able to tap into that inner child, you know, and I think even these parents realized that and saw that participating in the activities with their kids. Wow. Really powerful work that you're doing in the world, Tiffany, and that you've taken your traumas and you've turned it into triumph and you're helping other people. I'm really inspired by what you're doing and your message and how, how you turned all of that into wisdom you know, that you can share with others. I'm looking forward to reading your book. Uh, so is it going to be published soon then? The uh... Yeah, so it's being edited right now. Um, I actually meet with my editor on June 1st for, I think we're going to have one more edit beyond that. Uh, I wrote this book when I was 18. So if you're familiar with Dan Clark, he wrote In Chicken Soup for the Soul. Mm. saw me give a presentation and said, you've got to write a book about your life. And I was like, nobody's going to want to read a book about my life. <laughs> and so I kind of, dabbled with it from 18 to 20 and then 25. And then once I hit about 30, I was like, okay, maybe I should write a book, you know? And so I came up with the title, The Throwaway Girl, because kids that are in foster care are called throwaway kids. That's a term that's used as unfortunate as it sounds. And uh, I was just taught all the time by my mother that she's like, I wish I would have had an abortion or I wish I never had you or you're a piece of trash or, you know, and so I just felt very disposable to her and my dad. And so that one title kind of embodies my life story, but I want to say this, it's not a depressing autobiography. It actually starts with me running the torch in the Olympics and kind of a flashback into my life. And then it it finishes with me running the torch. And the whole message is we all have that power to light the flame within, you know, and once we light our own flame, let's light each other's flame. So So if you, if you had one wish for, if people really felt passionate about what I call pro-life, what's one thing that you think that they could do to make a huge difference towards a mission of making the world a better place for less suffering? It's like the famous uh, quote goes, be the change you wish to see in the world, right? So if your change is you want to stop states being able to say that abortions are banned, then let that be your purpose. 
you know, my change is I'm going to stop abuse one person at a time. It's not going to end in my lifetime, but I'm going to be the change that I'm creating a long-term example and effect. So my biggest advice would be, if you don't like something that's going on in the world, then change it. And people say, well, I'm just one person. Yeah, you're one person. And one person can turn into two to three to thousands to hundreds of thousands. It starts with one. So take that effort maybe and put it towards changing a child's life that's already here. Yep. Yep. And already being abused. Awesome. Thanks for that message. Thanks for the advocacy work that you do. And I will be putting links to share as well as to your your new book. This will be released around about uh, November. So it should be released by then. And then you will be able to actually get your book and read it. So thanks so much for coming on the show. And I appreciate you sharing your wisdom. I encourage everybody to please share out Tiffany's interview with anybody that you think could be inspired by this conversation and definitely give us a like, some stars on the ratings, wherever you found this episode to help it get up there in the rankings so that more people find it. And uh, we're going to give you kisses. You want to help give me everybody kisses? Sure. Okay. Here they come, everybody. (laughs) We love you. See you next time on Soul Nectar Show. Bye for now, everybody. If you found even one gold nugget in this episode of Soul Nectar Show, will you do us a favor? Will you subscribe, like, and share this episode? Maybe even write a comment and let us know what you thought about it. We really, really want to engage with you at a much deeper level. Let's be part of community together. Have a great week, everyone. Bye for now. To dive in deeper to nourishing conversation, visit soulnectar.show.